0: Berkeley Yeast. Creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go. go, 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 go. <sighs> Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at Hopsteiner.com.
1: Sponsored by Fermentis. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Saf Cider range. Every Saf Cider strain is certified ETU, so you can choose to pitch directly into the ward or proceed to rehydration. It makes no difference. It's up to you. We guarantee the same results. For the latest on their exciting new product releases and to learn how fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit fermentus.com.
0: Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com.
2: Out of the cross of our material with his material came these selections that so far are holding up against all the stem rust that uh, we know of.
0: This week on the show, a chat with Pat Hayes before he delivers the keynote address at the upcoming Master Brewers Conference in Seattle. We discuss some exciting new releases coming just before Pat's retirement, the OSU Barley Project, how Pat ended up becoming a barley breeder in the first
2: place, and more. Hi, I'm Pat Hayes. Uh, I'm a barley breeder at Oregon State University.
0: All right. Pat, you have a good radio voice. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. but
2: Oh, do. gosh. This is, this is my second career awaits me. Out
0: there, I know. Huh? That's what I was thinking. I guess I'll start by saying that um, I read in your bio that you're going to answer all my questions without offering any unsolicited advice.
2: Absolutely. Yep. <laughs>
0: What's that all about?
2: <laughs> no opinions, no advice. Yeah. So the uh, th- that's kind of my retirement tagline. So I'm planning to retire uh, 31st of uh, December this year. And then uh, I'll be around uh, halftime for six months uh, to ease the transition uh, for the program. But, uh, I, you know, I just I don't want to be one of those guys that is just sort of uh, getting in the way, you know, so I'm happy to facilitate transfers, but new people have new ideas and new directions. So we we need to let them go. So that's my new mantra.
0: All right. Good for you. Sounds very mature. Pat, when did you first become interested in barley?
2: Ah, well, uh, you know, um, I became interested in barley when it was uh, a paying job offer. And uh, so I'd done my PhD at University of Minnesota, and I had worked on wild rice, and then I'm looking for uh, jobs, and uh, there are a couple of options out there. And uh, my wife and I had dearly loved our time in Minnesota, but we kind of wanted to get out of the Midwest. And uh, this opportunity opens up at, uh, at Oregon State, and I'd done my master's here. And so I thought, well, shoot, let's uh, move back to Oregon. I got to admit, though, that my master's uh, did involve uh, barley, and I had just left that experience thinking that it was the hottest, itchiest uh, crop, and so <laughs> why, why mess with it? But, uh, you know, so we kind of worked through that uh, in, in the job here, and that all started about 37 years ago. Where are you originally from? Uh, Well, I was born in Visalia, California, a garden spot of the San Joaquin Valley, and uh, grew up uh, kind of, you know, a rotation between California, Mexico, and uh, Arizona. And why is that? Well, uh, I was really kind of fortunate, I guess, in that uh, my mom was a very early sort of bohemian hippie sort. And so she was a school teacher and she would work and save up enough money. And then uh, we'd pack up, uh, my sister and I, and we'd move to Mexico or to uh, Arizona and spend time until she needed to uh, get back in the workplace.
0: Cool. All right. So it sounds like your interest in in barley came after your interest in plant breeding. Maybe talk about your initial uh, foray into plant breeding and kind of where that um, motivation came from.
2: Yeah, so uh yeah, growing up in the in the southwest and and uh in Mexico and uh having that opportunity for cultural exposure and 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 foreign language immersion and all that. Uh you know, I, I just grew up thinking I wanted to be an archaeologist and uh so I went off to college at the University of Arizona and uh eventually got a job at the uh, Arizona State Museum and so forth and uh, Uh, You know, and it was it was all fascinating and good, uh, but I I just took a year off. Second year of college, it was you know I got to go do something else, and so I I go back to Mexico, and I'm just kind of kicking around in in Oaxaca, Mexico, not being particularly useful. And I go visit uh, this cousin of mine who was working at uh, CIMIT, the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, and uh, this cousin Paul says. Pat, you know, you're just, you're not getting anywhere. Why don't you just uh, come here to Summit and do our, uh, our training course and, uh, and see what you think about agriculture? So I was like, well, well why not? And uh, Norman Borlaug had just received the Nobel Prize. And so there I am, you know, in a, in a training program and Norman is out there with us. And uh, it was extremely motivational.
0: I think we might have told that story before, but um, it's it's an interesting one. Why don't you remind listeners uh, why he got the Nobel Prize?
2: So it was a Nobel prize in agriculture and, uh, and a first there. And so, uh, he was the, uh, the man behind the green revolution. And so that was, uh, this, uh, kind of philosophy of, uh, breeding varieties that would be extremely productive and would have, um, you know, require a commensurate, uh, set of inputs in order to achieve that productivity. And, uh, it, it, it you know, recently this book came out by Charles Mann called uh, The Wizard and the Prophet. And it's a story about uh, Norman Borlaug and, uh, and, and this other fellow named William Vogt, who was kind of the father of our contemporary environmental movement. And then there's, there's Borlaug as the, uh, the recipient of the Nobel Prize and, and, the, and the Green Revolution guy. And, and I'm sort of in the middle because I kind of grew up with this environmental social ethic. And then at the same time, uh, this embrace of plant breeding and technology. As, as a way to, uh, to keep us moving forward.
0: Pat, how does one become a barley breeder? And does the world need more of them?
2: Oh, God, yes. You know, <laughs> so... Uh, we need certainly need more plant breeders uh, yes we need more barley breeders the employment picture is uh, not necessarily uh, assured but uh, eventually there will be uh, some some very uh, you know, critical needs uh, in barley breeding and certainly in plant breeding uh, in general and so plant breeding as a is a specialty is one that uh, involves uh, both study and experience and And, uh, you know, when I was doing my PhD, you you focused on genetics and quantitative genetics, and then you kind of picked up some other area of specialization like plant pathology or plant nutrition. Uh, Today, plant breeders are likely to uh, also have expertise in some area of uh, contemporary genetics and molecular biology to to complement their plant training. But at the end of the day, you just really have to 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 enjoy and thrive on uh on field experience and you know it sounds a little trite but as 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 Borlaug would say you just got to get out and talk to the plants
0: okay so for all those listeners out there who may be a bit younger that are um you know considering contemplating careers how would they go about um, pursuing a career in in plant breeding
2: well, uh, an easy place to start is just drop me a line, and uh, you know, and kind of describe your interests of what you'd like to do, and and why you would want to do it, and then uh, certainly uh, a background, a solid background in sciences at the undergraduate level is going to help you, but it's it it's not critical. Uh, like I said, I started out in, in archaeology and uh, in Latin American studies, and then moved off and picked up the science stuff. Uh, I've got. Uh, Colleagues uh, here, and, and have former graduate students who have just come from a from a diverse uh, set of backgrounds, uh, including a, a colleague who uh, her undergraduate work was in um, gender and women's studies, and. She thought, hey, you know, agriculture, plant breeding is is the niche that I want. So once you've kind of made that decision, then you come into uh, probably a master's program somewhere, and then that's followed by a PhD program. And uh, in today's world, then that's going to be followed by a postdoc. So you've probably got six, seven, eight years of uh, of university training.
0: Okay. Speaking of universities, Pat, you've taught a lot of students about plant genetics. Is that impact more important than all of the research and breeding accomplishments you've had?
2: Well, it's it's neither more nor less. I mean, they're they're so complementary, and I think that that is is uh, an outstanding feature of our land grant university system, is that uh, our faculty teach and do research. And so, you know, if I'm if I'm reading a, an article in a in a scientific journal, then that feeds directly into my class, and then what's happening in my class feeds back into the research program, and so it's a really positive loop. Certainly, they're very productive plant breeders in in the U.S. and industry who who aren't necessarily teaching and our colleagues in Europe who are in variety development tend to be with private companies. Those in the institutes will have very heavy teaching loads but may not be responsible for variety development. I mean, I think we have the best of both worlds here.
0: Back on episode 83, I asked you why barley breeding was primarily a public endeavor in North America because it's privatized in the rest of the world. You then mentioned that we might have been at a tipping point. That was more than five years ago. So I want to hear about how things look now. The world of hops sure hit a major tipping point, or maybe I should say landslide about that same time. Should we brace for something similar in barley as well?
2: I think so, and it's all, there's always the tip, and then there's how long does it take for that change to materialize? And so, uh, you know, plant breeding in the U.S. is, um, uh, something that, uh, in, in the case of a lot of crops, uh, is the variety release is now the province of industry, and then the pre-breeding or the more fundamental research is the province of the university. I think it's really a question of kind of profit motive, and is there enough incentive for industry to be engaged? Uh, we've got very uh, productive programs here in the U.S., uh, the, uh, the Molson Coors program, the AB InBev program, and uh, then our colleagues, In Europe, uh, then are also uh, making significant contributions on the variety front. uh, In the U.S., Lima grain is probably in the forefront, uh, but uh, KWS uh, is also then bringing varieties in. So, I think we're seeing an increasing uh, role for the private sector, and uh, will the universities persist? Of course, uh, in some places and uh, in some um, you know contexts, but I would say the net uh, trajectory is towards privatization.
0: I understand that you plan to release two new varieties this year and germplasm that is resistant to all known races of stem rust. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, we'd, we'd like to just pursue the variety release front um, on the GN zeroes. And so these are the zero glycosidic nitriles. And so that's really an exciting uh, place to be because our, our varieties are are for fall planting. And so there are uh, numerous GN zero springs out there, but for the distilling industry, then we've got kind of the the climate change plus of a fall planted barley plus the GN zero attribute. And so we've got, one that is um, the, that has the uh, the name of top shelf that uh, we're we're pursuing release on, and uh, then we've got one in the works that is called uh, Flex, uh, because it is one of these facultative varieties, so it can be planted uh, fall or spring. So those are some exciting developments on the. Um, on the, the, the barley front. Uh, we, alas, don't have a naked, uh, barley necessarily in the variety release queue. We've got a, a promising naked malting type. Um, and that's something that I've just been really keen on for some time, but I, I think, uh, we may get this one ready for, uh, Margaret Krauss will be taking over the program, uh, to release or some, uh, uh progeny or derivative that, uh, involves parentage of uh, of this one that we're working on the kind of the code name on this naked malt variety is uh eden and uh and that comes because one of the champions and in, in the malting industry of of the naked barleys is scott garden at uh, great western malting so you can put together garden and eden and see where that's going uh, the uh, germplasm uh, or uh, th- that are resistant to stem rust uh, are kind of a, a just a really neat thing, and I think a hallmark of of the collaborative spirit of our program. and And we call these the Woodies, and they uh, there's two of them, and and they're called the Woodies because uh, a, um, a a now deceased uh, colleague at the University of California Davis was Lynn Woody Gallagher. And uh, Lynn was just an absolute eccentric and kind of a curmudgeon, but, oh, did he have an eye for barley and disease resistance? And we've been working on the stem rust for some time. And then Lynn had developed these selections that were also resistant to stem rust. And out of the cross of our material with his material came these uh, spring uh, uh, selections that uh, so far are holding up uh, against the uh, all the stem rust that uh, we know of uh, in Africa—that's in the Ug99 lineage—and then our I was going to ask if that includes
0: the dreaded Ug99. Yeah, the
2: dreaded Ug99. Yeah. UG and so, fingers crossed that holds up there. And then our colleague Bob Brueggemann at Washington State University, formerly of uh, North Dakota State University, is is kind of uh, the leading molecular guy for stem rust resistance. And no sooner does he show up at uh, in, in Pullman in Washington than these like super virulent Virulent races of stem rust uh, appear in Washington State, and and knock on wood, these woodies, uh, particularly one of them, are are holding up very well against that uh, that new virulence there. But Neil Young said it, you know. Russ never sleeps, so <laughs> you, <laughs> so you can't uh, rest on your laurels. But uh, with these uh, uh, germplasms out there, then uh, a germplasm is, is is simply uh, a kind of an unfinished variety that you just want to get out into the hands of your colleagues without any restriction as quickly as possible, so people can make use of it. <music> Coming up, we need to be open to every new technology that that comes, but we have to be cautious uh, to not jump on bandwagons.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
1: Support for this episode comes from BSG. Looking for a sustainable way to increase fermenter capacity? Try FirmCap Eco from Cary. Developed as a part of Kerry's Eco Brewing range, FirmCap Eco is a plant-based alternative to traditional silicon-based products. FirmCap Eco increases fermenter capacity by reducing foam height to improve beer foam stability and enhance hop utilization. Visit BSGCraftbrewing.com or contact your BSG sales rep to get started.
2: Get to know Proximity Malt.
1: positively impact your process product and profitability with actionable insights from brew iq the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash mbaa to start saving time and money today
0: are you sure you're getting the best deal visit the lupulin exchange where you can find every hop variety every brand and every vendor Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Venezuela meets September 21st. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The District St. Louis September Shop Talk is on the 28th at Well-Spent Brewing. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. District Ontario's Iron Brewer Competition is September 29th in Toronto. District St. Paul, Minneapolis is having a happy hour October 4th at Indeed Brewing Company, all proceeds benefit the District Scholarship Fund. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District New England meets October 6th in Lyman. District St. Louis's annual fall meeting is October 12th. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids October 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets at Ska Brewing in Durango October 21st. District Southern California meets November 4th at Tarantula Hill Brewing. District Great Plains, District St. Louis and the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild are holding a joint meeting November 10th and 11th in Springfield. District Southeast meets November 10th and 11th in Jacksonville, Florida. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress, August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
1: Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
0: Back to the show. Going back to those those two new varieties that you mentioned, based on what you're talking about in terms of the the flexibility and whatnot, is it safe to assume uh, they can could be grown in uh, all over the country, or is are they were they uh, bred specifically for? A certain region, or how does that work?
2: Well, you know, we're based in in the the lovely Willamette Valley, and this is where we do uh, our initial testing and selection. So things that we develop are are clearly going to be adapted here. But we realize that this is 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 not the epicenter of uh, of malting barley production, and so we try to quickly uh, get our selections out uh, for testing in target environments. And so uh, one for us is is certainly uh, South Idaho, and uh, that's where Great Western Malting and AB InBev do a fair bit of their contracting. But we like to cast a, a much wider net uh, than that as well. And so uh, we test across the country in an in a, uh, experiment that is uh, coordinated by Kevin Smith at University of Minnesota called the Winter Malting Barley Trial. And uh, and then these selections have also been uh, uh, picked up by the folks at uh, Proximity Malt who have been testing them at University of uh, Delaware, and the Flex was picked up by Origin Malt and they've been testing it in Ohio and then uh, in Kentucky. So yeah, I mean you want to get these these things out and as widely uh, assessed as as possible always recognizing that, that the chances that something that a breeder in, in location X develops is not going to be as well adapted to something in location Y as to what the local breeder has. So maybe, uh, you know, in Kentucky, uh, if there's production there, these things may have a fit, but the hope is going to be that, that breeders in that region can use them as, as parental stock and then come up with varieties that are even better adapted to those regions. Sounds good. Tell
0: us about the OSU Barley project.
2: Oh, well, yeah. The OSU Barley Project is uh, just a continually evolving cast of characters, uh, if you will. And uh, the current staff are just an outstanding bunch. And, and over the years, we've just been so fortunate to have just great people, great students come through. And so it's very much a, a collaborative uh, uh, you know, enterprise. And uh, the, the real stalwarts of the program right now are um, Scott Fisk, who runs our uh, field and malt program Laura Helgerson who runs the greenhouse program and then pitches it in the field uh, springs and summers and then um, she also collaborates with the double haploid program which is currently uh, managed by Tanya Felichkin, who will be uh, retiring uh, probably about the same time that uh, that I do and our postdoc uh, most recent postdoc and a long lineage of, of just outstanding scientists is a guy named Chris Massman um, who is an example of, of a positive outcome of, of COVID, and, and that is that, that we can now appreciate that people can work remotely. And so Chris is based in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, rather than Corvallis, and uh, and so he just does tremendous work uh, from a distance.
0: What are the most exciting areas of barley research at OSU right now?
2: Well, the GN Zero has been an exciting one. Uh, the, the one that has just been so, um, I guess I'd say, kind of just fun because of its exploratory nature has been this uh, quest for flavor. That is, what are the contributions of a barley variety via its malt to, to beer flavor?
0: All right. Tell us about some more.
2: So there's kind of a fun one, which is the um, the the case of the variety Lantra, and uh, that's been a partnership with uh, the folks at Admiral Malting, uh, a floor malter uh, based in in the Bay Area. And uh this uh lantra is a, is an outcome of of research that we did with uh Campbell Morrissey as the graduate student. Campbell's now the director of operations at Freem Family Brewers and, and Hood River. But he was uh kind of the, the point guy in a lot of this flavor research for his PhD thesis and 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 one uh I guess our approach had been to try to uh, take some of the classics, uh, that out there like uh, golden promise and then Maris otter, uh, that, that are renowned for having flavor attributes and then trying to create, uh, more modern heirlooms out of them by, uh, crossing them to, uh, newer varieties and then selecting progeny that would have high yield and hopefully, uh, better disease resistance, winter hardiness, and, uh, as well as preserving that flavor. So out of this comes, uh, Lantra and, uh, the, the the name Lantra is uh, comes from the fact that that's the the genus of the New World otter, and uh, the genus of the Old World otter is uh, Lutra. And so, if Maris otter is the Old World otter, then uh, then uh, we have now the the New World otter of Lantra. And so, you know, just imagine the QR code that may show up ultimately on a beer uh, going into this whole otter uh, taxonomy thing.
0: <laughs> I like it. Um, Pat, are you as excited about Hollis Barley as Keith Armstrong was on episode 278?
2: Uh, yeah, I think so, but m- maybe tempered a little bit with just kind of a, the school of hard knocks that, uh, <laughs> you know, that I, I guess when, when we first really, you know, I'd, people have been working on, let, let me preface this. People have been working on naked barlays a long, long time, a long time and certainly before I got in the game and, bef- and you know, I looked at it and said, oh, geez, you know, simply inherited trade, single gene, uh, you know, potential malt extracts through the roof, uh, and they're GN zeros just by default, uh, because you you lose the acrospire, and it was like, well, what's not to like? Plus, all of the marketing opportunities, and and I think what's what is is fascinating and 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 exciting, and and it was because it's a challenge, and there's all of this sort of other collateral stuff in naked barleys that, that I just never imagined. For example, uh, how well do they thresh? And so there's like a gradation within nakeds of how well they actually shed the hull on the one hand, and then there's a whole gradation within the nakeds of how well they can hang under their embryos during the threshing process. And so, you know, you may have a selection that just looks outstanding in a particular environment or test or something. And then it just completely falls apart the next year and and has beta-glucans that are absolutely through the roof. And you realize that, oh, my God, it just lost its embryos during the threshing process in that environment. And so some significant portion of the grain is just dead. So it won't malt. So we're trying to work our way through all of those challenges. But I I do think that the naked barley in the long run still has this tremendous potential, potential, potential. (music)
0: It must feel like the world of genetics has advanced exponentially during your career. Is there anything you'd like to say about new genetic tools or the role of new techno- or the role new technologies are likely to play in barley?
2: Yeah, so I guess um, I would say we need to be open to every new technology that that comes, but we have to be cautious uh, to not jump on bandwagons, as a colleague Rex Bernardo at University of Minnesota has called them. Where you know there's a tendency in, in science as in fashion to just jump on the latest one, and and one of the ones that uh, the technologies that that uh, you know is certainly. Captured so much attention through its potential is gene editing. Uh, you know the current application of that is is CRISPR. Where then you 're able to modify uh, a single gene uh, and then uh, potentially uh you know take uh, for example a covered barley, turn it into a naked barley with a simple edit, whereas the same uh, you know project might have uh, taken you uh, decades through a conventional crossing and selection program there's a cautionary bit to that I think, in that there are uh very few. Uh, very simple solutions to complex problems, and so we did a collaborative CRISPR project uh, with uh, Naked uh, for Naked Barley, in fact, and so we took uh, the Golden Promise. And, and I was already eyeing my retirement at this point, thinking that if we made a naked promise, then maybe that uh, spirits made from that naked grain might have some interesting uh, flavor properties over time. So I was envisioning getting these casks of spirits, you know, every five years from someone made from the naked versus the uh, covered uh, golden promise. Well, it, it, when we first put these things in the field, it was like, wow, there's something a little wrong with them. And and sure enough, they um, they had this kind of off-color, and there was just like all of this collateral damage that had occurred in the genome as a consequence of targeting that that single gene that's responsible for nude. And so for me, it was a cautionary table of, of don't be, don't have such confidence that you're going to be able to immediately just make a clean surgical slice in something and uh and that you're going to immediately get your target outcome. Uh you may get there and and it can certainly be a powerful tool for uh, validating uh, other discoveries and for uncovering uh, other complexities. The other piece of it that we've always got to consider is what's the cost of the intellectual property attached to that? So if we develop a variety uh, via uh, these technologies, will the price of that seed still be affordable uh, for a crop like barley where um, the margins are are pretty uh, narrow as they are?
0: You've already mentioned retirement a few times, so I think you mean it. And your LinkedIn bio says that you plan to stay connected to, quote, tasty challenges in plant science and plant products via HO Associates. Talk about what lies ahead.
2: Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, I'd like to certainly stay plugged into um Barley and plant breeding and the malting and brewing industries and so forth, uh, with uh, the, the the caveat that uh, I'm certainly not going to be involved uh, with any barley's coming out of the Oregon State University system, except to uh, answer questions, uh, but otherwise not uh, <laughs> not not intrude on on, on that scene. Uh, and so, yeah, there's some just much bigger questions out there which are exciting uh, that would be really cool to be a part of, and so. Uh, the uh, consulting and the HO is, is like as in the null hypothesis. Uh, and so that, uh, we just assume that, uh, everything's the same until proven otherwise. And so I think we just need to approach, uh, challenges with that sort of sense of, of skepticism. In addition to that, I've got, uh, you know, some granddaughters I'd like to spend more time with. Uh, there's a lot of roads out there that, uh, my bicycle hasn't been on yet. And then there's, uh, just a whole world of art that I've just been kind of piddling around the edges of that I'd like to, to get a lot better at.
0: Sounds good. You'll be the keynote speaker during the upcoming Master Brewers Conference in Seattle next month. What do you plan to talk about there? What's your message to the brewing community?
2: you know've i 've been thinking about that a lot, and finally have uh, a slide set now uh, on the template with mostly just the the kind of the the key pieces that i 'm starting to populate that with some tasty images of barley and what have you but the 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 title of it at this point is barley 's beers and and Baselines. And, uh, there's the, the baseline thing is, is kind of a, uh, that there's a couple of meanings there is that you have the baseline as in like music, uh, where barley is the base of beer. And so, uh, it's to kind of riff on that idea a little bit. And then there's also, uh, just a, a baseline that fits into the, uh, the, the theme of the conference, which is community. And so I'd like to, to really explore the community that we have in this industry that involves um, uh, plant breeders, uh, mulsters, brewers, and uh, and farmers. And uh, and so the talk is sort of structured around that community, the kinds of communication channels that exist, and those that could be enhanced, so that we can just deal with this uh, the just this this uh, challenge of climate change, which. is out there um, uh, just uh, uh, waiting uh, for us and already making itself felt.
0: That was Pat Hayes here on the Master Brewers podcast. Don't miss Pat's keynote address during the Master Brewers conference in Seattle on October 6th. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast?